Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. My guest today is Wayne Johnson out of Kansas City, Kansas, and I've been so inspired by his words and the good work that he has done in education for our Native American kids. He served our country in the Navy and has an impressive resume in the world of Native education. Holly Toe, Wayne, thank you so much for your service and thank you for joining me. Wonderful. Thanks for taking time out. And what our guests probably didn't see is we just spent like two hours with some <laughs> technical issues, but Wayne has been so patient. And as much as I admired you already, Wayne, I think uh, your cool factor just went up even more. So, <laughs> all right. So you hail from the Muscogee tribe, correct? Yes. Yes, I do. And I'm actually, I'm Muscogee and Seminole. My dad was half Seminole, so I'm one quarter Seminole and three-fourths Muscogee. All right. Well, welcome. For our listeners, the Muscogee were originally from Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and Tennessee. And of course, most of them were forced in the 1830s to move to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, and what is now known as the Trail of Tears, or as we actually call it, the Removal. But before we learn more about your ancestry and your good work in education for our Native youth, tell us a bit about your early life and where you grew up. Yes, I, I was born actually in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, I guess the, the history of that was that both my mother and father lived in Oklahoma in the Indian Territory of the Muscogee Reservation. And... And then, of course, after they uh, got to a point in their life where they were looking for a place to settle down, once they got to meeting each other, they ended up in in Wichita. So that's kind of how I grew up in Wichita. Although I'm I'm very partial to Oklahoma, my dad would come home from work and he'd say, pack up, we're going home. That was Oklahoma for us. So Oklahoma is kind of 
in my heart always been home. It's also where I, you know, I went to high school, uh, Wichita High School South. And uh, it's also where uh, I joined the Navy, like my dad, like my brother. So I always considered myself being uh, a veteran and understanding the privilege that our people, many of our people, uh, have experienced uh, being warriors. It's always an honor for me to, to talk about uh, me being and having served. That's wonderful. And thank you again for your, your time and, and service to our country. And so you went to Wichita High School, as you mentioned, and then into the Navy after that. And you were encouraged then to go to Haskell Indian Junior College, but you initially didn't want to go. Why is that? Uh, I have to back up and share a little story with you that when I was in high school, it was my senior year. And, and I, I think the counselors were calling uh, a lot of the seniors into the office just to you know visit, talk about. Uh, what maybe the future might hold. And uh, at that time, uh, being an educator myself, at that time, uh, students were not privy to what was in their counseling folders. Mm -hmm. Anybody could put anything in those folders and the parents couldn't see them, nor could the student. And uh, so I was sitting there in, in the, at the desk and uh, the counselor, she got up and left the room, well, she left the, the folder laying open and nosy me, I kind of looked over uh, the front of the desk and I saw that she had written in the column of the folder, not college material. Oh and, uh, you know, and at the time, uh, I guess I didn't think much about that because I, I guess I didn't really consider myself college material either. My grades weren't all that great, and nor was my ACT. And, and quite frankly, I didn't really care about going on to college. So I graduated, and, and of course, as we know, the, the Vietnam War was real big at that time. And uh, so I already knew that here I was graduating in May. I was going to turn 18 in October. And by December, I was joining the United States Navy. So that was in the latter portion of 1964. You know, so uh, that's that's why we might think of it as a tough time, but yet at the same time, I was, uh, because my dad was in the service, my brother was, older brother was in the service. Uh, I wanted to be in the service. So... That was the next four years of my life. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I mean, like <laughs> you think about someone putting not college material in somebody's <laughs> folder. I mean, what council of the year yeah. right there? What is that? Let me follow that up. Uh, you know, I spent four years in the service and I got out. And, and you know, Rachel, all of a sudden you find yourself thinking, okay you kind of remember what life was like before those four years. And now all of a sudden, it's an entirely different world. You know, it's a whole different circumstance than what it was before, you know, you left home. So I've always been kind of athletic and 
And so that summer that I got home, after I got home, they, I started to play fast pitch softball with a bunch of other uh, Indian guys around around town. And uh, little did I know that the catcher on our team was the head basketball coach at Butler County Junior College, uh, which is in El Dorado, Kansas, just north of Wichita. And uh, after the game, he knew that my brother and I had just gotten out of the service. So after the game, he came up uh, and spoke about Haskell. Well, I did not know that Haskell was becoming a junior college. And uh, he was going to be the head basketball coach. And he said, we'd really like to have you and your brother come and uh, you know, go on to school. It's not going to cost you anything. And... Uh, you know, and as, as funny as it might seem, I recalled that day sitting in the counselor's office looking at that uh, little script there that said <laughs> not college material. And, My uh, heavens. <laughs> so at the, so it, it created a, a little bit of panic. You know, I told the coach, no, I, I just didn't think that, you know, I was I could do college work. And so I said no. And he also spoke to my brother that same evening, and my brother said no. Now, what I did not know was that he had spoke to my mom and dad. And when we got home, they called us upstairs and sat us down. And that's what they wanted us to do. Quit school, quit, quit our work, and uh, go to high school. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny, amusingly, afterwards, I told my brother, I said, now, is, is that the same dad that told us after we graduated from high school that, that we're going to live at home, you're going to work, you're going to pay a bill, and you're going to help buy food? <laughs> but, oh, what happened in there? That's crazy, right? But, uh, but that's what we did, because only because of our mother and father, we quit our jobs, and, and, and we went to high school. And uh, and I can tell I can tell you without going through my entire life at Haskell that it was one of the most wonderful experiences that I have ever had. So, That's amazing. So when I, I sent you that picture, and I told you that that was the beginning and the end. My AA degree from Haskell. It's the only degree I have posted on my wall, other than my doctor's degree. So for me, uh, I see that and I'm reminded of uh, what my mom and dad gave me. You know, we, we did that and changed our life and gave us something to look forward to. Now, my brother did go on and get a master's degree at Penn State. That's great. So, so he left Haskell, went to uh, Fort Hayes State. I left Haskell and went to Baker University, and then uh, that's kind of how my life started, I guess, after the service. But I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed about, you know, about having been able to um, go to Haskell. I know Haskell, as an Indian school, has meant so much to a lot of people, and I can tell you, as I traveled across this country, for the business of Indian education, you're always going to run into somebody that went to Haskell. One of my good friends is uh, Billy Mills, you know, the 
Olympic champion. And uh, so uh, you know, he's a high school alumni. But, you know, like I say, it's, it's uh, always a, a pleasure to sometimes travel around and run into people that you maybe even went to school at high school. Uh, yeah. Um, in my business of education, you know, I I knew if, if wherever I went, whatever meeting I was attending or whatever I was doing, I, I knew I was always going to run into either a friend that I went to school with or just somebody that attended ASK. Wow. It really is interesting to Wayne that the short of the story is for that is, you know, you overcame so much with just that one mention from a counselor in your file. You overcame that. You basically, you had the confidence to overcome that hurdle that that counselor had put in your way. You knocked that down, you ran over it, you never looked back. And, you know, you, you basically turned that around to be such a great thing for you and your family and your kids later and all of that. And I love that your passion is for education and it didn't come easy to you. You worked for it. You worked hard for it and really showed that counselor what Wayne Johnson is all about, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I do still think about that a little bit and kind of laugh, but but you know, I I was in the business of American Indian education for 40 years before I retired. And that single comment that that counselor made uh, had a lot to do with how I dealt with young people that I worked with mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I was at Flandre Indian School, when I was at Pine Ridge, when I was at Todd County on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, when I was at Riverside Indian School in Oklahoma. You know, all of those opportunities that I had to work with young people, both on reservation and off reservation, that's something that I always wanted them to feel mm -hmm. uh, that was they, they could do whatever they wanted to do, not because somebody didn't believe in them. Right, right. Yeah, so it was, we, uh, I know a little bit about what it's like to work in a public school, but my 40 years was working with American Indian people in American Indian communities, mm -hmm. either on on or off reservation. So, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I like to think that if I left any legacy at all in what I did, it, it was to have the opportunity to work with Native young people the Pine Ridge, where the Pine Ridge School is and where the Todd County School is that I worked with on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation uh, are considered two of the poorest counties in the nation. But I, I can tell you, they, well, it might have been the toughest place to work, uh, but they were two of the greatest experiences for me personally. To, to be there and, and live there and, and be a part of, uh, you know, these young people's lives. And somebody driving through there uh, might not think that it's such a great place, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I can tell you the experiences that I had there and, you know, I just value and cherish those so much even now, mostly because uh, a lot of the Facebook friends that I have are my former kids, and uh, they they always keep in touch with me, and 
And it's always so cool to see the things that they themselves have achieved, you know, after they graduated from high school, nurses, you know, educators, just professional people, because they, they took a, a position to say, you know, like, I can do this. And, you know, and I'd, I'd like to think that uh, was a little bit of my influence in working with them. Uh, but it's, it's always fun to, to watch and see, you know, how well they do. And so it's, yeah, you're right. It's been a, a total blessing for me <laughs> to have had that experience and turned it into something real positive. Well, and I, I hope that, you know, when you were working with kids, sometimes you would tell them that story or even your, your, your own kids or whatever, because it's a great inspirational piece. I know I'm going to use it to inspire me. Hey, tell me I can't do something. Go ahead. I'm <laughs> exactly. ready. <laughs> exactly. So let's see. So you were in the Navy, you came home, you did Haskell uh, Indian school, played fast pitch softball, which is awesome. And then after that, uh, is that when you went to Riverside Indian School? Uh, you know, that's a, a whole other thing uh, about me going to Flanders Indian School. I was at Baker University. I was in the student union over at Haskell. And uh, the president of the school came in. He saw me sitting there and he said, uh, he said, Wayne, you're, you're going to graduate this year, aren't you, from Baker? And I said, yes, sir, with my bachelor's degree. And he said, uh, have you thought about what you're going to do? And, and actually, I had given it a lot of thought because I always wanted to be a football coach. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actually had maybe two or three other opportunities to do that, to go and coach somewhere. Cool. Uh, at the same time, uh, he had a friend that was a superintendent at Flanders Indian School in South Dakota. He said, come over to my office. So we went over there. And he called Flanders, South Dakota. And uh, uh, they knew I wanted to coach. And they didn't have any PE positions, which um, I was a physical educator. But they had an English teacher. And my certifications on my teacher's certificate showed that I was you know, certified to teach English. Mm-hmm. And But I, did, I didn't want to teach English. And I wanted to coach. So I, I told them no. So that uh, last semester I was doing my student teaching and I got a call and it was from South Dakota and they wanted me to reconsider, you know, coming there. And uh, so now all of a sudden that kind of threw a a monkey wrench into things because, you know, was I going to take these other opportunities to go on to school and coach or was I going to take this job? And history would have it that I would take the job. So, <laughs> and, and you know, Rachel, I look back sometimes not uh, with any disdain for anything, but uh, that was a real crossroads for me. Hmm. To say In that, what way? Well, to say that I, I wasn't going to do what I wanted to do to coach. Right. And all of a sudden, I was going to be a teacher. I mean, yeah. teachers coach. Teachers do coach, and I yeah. did. You know, so, and I did that, but uh, it's not like uh, I wanted to be a college coach. Mm. So, uh, and I had uh, several opportunities to do that, and I, I made the decision to take a job. So that's really how I ended up at Flanders Indian School, uh, was because of the president of Haskell at that time. 
And then I stayed there for two and a half years as a teacher. And then uh, I moved to uh, Oklahoma uh, because once again, I got a call from, actually I got a call from two uh, superintendents, one at Chilaco Indian School and one at Riverside. And uh, they wanted me to come work there. Now I had to choose between Riverside and Chilaco. And the way I did that was the first school that did the paperwork first. That's where I went, and that happened to be Riverside in Anadarko. So that's how I ended up there. But I stayed two and a half years at Riverside, and I, I actually only stayed two and a half years at Riverside. And uh, of course, I played a lot of fast pitch softball in Oklahoma, and I still played fast pitch softball for Haskell. And all the while, I worked on my master's degree at Weatherford Southwestern. Uh, those two and a half years. Now, this is crazy because I graduated in the summer of 1980 with my master's degree. I'm standing around in the office at Riverside Indian School, and the secretary says, you have a phone call. And when I answered the call, it was a good friend of mine at Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And he said, Wayne, we're looking for a coach. And I said, I don't coach anymore. I want to be a school administrator. And he said, then we're looking for a principal. And so I applied for the principal's job. And before school started at Riverside that September, I was headed to Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and as the principal of the high school. So for the you know, early part of my career since I left Haskell, two and a half years at, in, at Flanger, two and a half years at Riverside, getting my master's degree, and now becoming a principal at Pine Ridge. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and let's see, during that time that you, before you went to Pine Ridge, were you working with my dad at the same time at Riverside Indian School? I was, I'm sure yes. if you were, Okay, how crazy is that? Yeah. I keep running yeah. into those scenarios, and it's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah that is so cool, because, you know, and I, again, Rachel, I have to tell you, you know, in the positions that I worked in, in the places that I have been there, you know, half of my experience has been just the people that I worked around. You know, that, that was half the job, just associating with the people that you worked with and uh, working with the kids. And, you know, it really created, uh, I have to say, a, a, really, a real community environment with Mm -hmm. with all of the people that you were around. That's what Haskell was to me. That's why I was successful at Haskell. That's why I could do the work because mm -hmm. you, you were around people that you enjoyed being around. You enjoyed being at the school, doing the things that you did that made you want to do your best there. And, yeah. and, you always, and you always had the support system to do that. And, uh, Again, like I say, I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. But just being around Indian people in general, that's the way it was all everywhere I went. Pine, Riverside, Pine Ridge. And then I, I stayed a year at Pine Ridge. And then I took the principal's job at Flandre Indian School in, in Flandre. That, that's where I started. So I kind of went full circle. Started at Flandre as a teacher. Ended up their principal. 
A lot of folks have heard of Pine Ridge due to controversial and devastating events over the years. Home to the Oglala Lakota tribe, which is a subculture of the Sioux people, Pine Ridge is located in South Dakota and at over 2 million acres or 3,400 square miles. It's considered among the largest of reservations in the country. It is also considered one of the poorest. Today, there are approximately 28,000 Oglala Lakota in the reservation. Bear with me here, listeners, as this story is so intertwined among multiple important and devastating events. There once was a native religious movement called the Ghost Dance of 1890, which various tribes believed would bring dead spirits and living people together again in hopes of pushing back the white settlers encroaching on their lands and also bringing unity to multiple tribes. There was a spiritual leader named Jack Wilson, otherwise known as Wavoka, who prophesied that this unity um, would actually happen. This religious dance that spread throughout the United Western States from California to Oklahoma uh, really took off. It's such an interesting concept since at the time, tribes were rarely joining together, whether physically or spiritually for a common purpose. At that same time, the Dawes Act had been enacted in 1887, so some believed that the ghost dance spurred the Lakota to resist the Dawes Act. For those who aren't familiar, the Dawes Act is significant for our Native ancestors. That act divided Native land holdings into land allotments for the heads of each household. So, for instance, that's the moment that my ancestors and many others received 160 acres of land in certain tribal territories. Some American Indians did fight this act. Each native was given a roll number, and many didn't like the idea of being turned into a number. And my own great-grandfather scalped and murdered multiple people during this time for that very reason. So again, the ghost dance was blamed for what was about to happen next. Fearing that the ghost dances were meant to rile up the natives to wage war against the government because of the Dawes Act, the U.S. decided to put a stop to the movement. Sitting Bull was to be arrested, but he was killed in the process. So Chief Spotted Elk, who was leading some sects of the Sioux and the Lakota, he fled to Standing Rock Agency seeking sanctuary at Pine Ridge. On December 29, 1890, the 7th Cavalry attacked and killed over 150 Sioux, half of them being women and children. This was known as the Wounded Knee Massacre. In the Lakota accounts of the massacre at Wounded Knee, from the report of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs for 1891, was an account by American Horse, which read, the men were separated, as has already been said, from the women, and they were surrounded by the soldiers. Then came next the village of the Indians, and that was entirely surrounded by the soldiers also. When the firing began, of course the people who were standing immediately around the young man who fired the first shot were killed right together, and then they turned their guns, Hotchkill guns, etc., upon the women who were in the lodges standing there under a flag of truce, and of course, as soon as they were fired upon, they fled, the men fleeing in one direction and the women running in two different directions, so that there were three general directions in which they took flight. There was a woman with an infant in her arms who was killed as she almost touched the flag of truce. And the women and children, of course, were strewn all along the circular village until they were dispatched. Right near the flag of truce, a mother was shot down with her infant. The child, not knowing that its mother was dead, was still nursing. And that especially was a very sad sight. The women, as they were fleeing with their babies, were killed together, shot right through. And the women who were very heavy with child were also killed. 
all the Indians fled in these three directions. And after most of all of them had been killed, a cry was made that all those who were not killed or wounded should come forth and they would be safe. Little boys who were not wounded came out of their place of refuge. And as soon as they came in sight, a number of soldiers surrounded them and butchered them there. Listeners, if you haven't read the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, please do so. Fair warning, though, it will break you. It will absolutely break you. Growing up in Anadarko, Oklahoma, I grew up with a lot of Caddo, and during the Indian Exposition every year, the ghost dancers would come down Main Street during the fair that kicked off the exposition, and my sisters and I were always in awe. Another event of significance in 1971, Oglala Lakota College was created in Pine Ridge by the Sioux. A grassroots protest started in 1973 due to discontent within the reservation surrounding the push to impeach the Oglala Lakota tribal chairman, Richard Wilson. Now, Mr. Wilson was apparently unpopular with some of the tribal members. He favored mixed races over full blood and the traditional ways, so half of the tribe was not pleased. So they called on AIM, the American Indian Movement, for support. The tribe divided into two camps that had armed themselves and activists from all over the camp came to occupy the area in support of the protests. What is known as the Wounded Knee Incident was a result of this event, which turned into 71 days of a standoff with law enforcement, including the tribal police as well. Two natives and two law enforcement officers were killed and many injured as well. AIM and their protesters agreed to cease the occupation and protest after the White House promised to look into their complaints. Now talk about awkward. After the occupation had ended, Richard Wilson wasn't removed as chairman because it actually would have been illegal for the U.S. government to remove him. So he and the tribal protesters, which was only a portion of the tribe, of course, but they were at odds to say the least. And not only was he not removed, he was reelected and eventually became tribal president in 1974. Can you imagine what tribal gatherings must have been like when he was present? So three years after the protests, Pine Ridge had the highest murder rate in the country. I mentioned AIM or the American Indian Movement earlier. The most well-known female activist in AIM was Anna Mae Akwash. On February 24, 1976, her body was found in Pine Ridge Reservation. She had been shot execution style. Interestingly enough, some people from AIM said she was an informant for the FBI, which has been denied by the government. It wouldn't have been too much of a stretch as the head of security, Doug Durham, was found in 1974 to have been an FBI informant. It turns out Anna May was killed by two members of AIM. Sometimes it's not easy to hear certain pieces of history or facts about what's going on in the Native American communities even today, but it's important that we all learn. Here are some statistics according to the Friends of Pine Ridge Reservation.org. Pine Ridge Reservation is the poorest county in the United States. Rapid City, South Dakota is the nearest town for those who can travel to find work. It is located 120 miles from the reservation. The nearest large city to Pine Ridge is Denver, Colorado, located some 350 miles away. 97% of the population lives far below the U.S. federal poverty line with a median household income ranging between $2,600 and $3,500 per year. There is no industry, technology, or commercial infrastructure to provide employment for its residents, contributing to its 90% unemployment rate. There are no banks, motels, discount stores, and the one grocery store of moderate size is tasked with providing for the entire community. 
there's a 70% high school dropout rate. The average life expectancy on the reservation is 47 years for men and 52 years for women. Teenage suicide rate is 150% higher than the US national average. Infant mortality rate is the highest on this continent and about 300% higher than the US national average. There's an estimated average of 17 people living in each family home, a home that may only have two to three rooms. Some reservation families are forced to sleep on dirt floors. Over 33% of homes have no electricity or basic water and sewage systems, forcing many to carry often contaminated water from local rivers daily for their personal needs. At least 60% of homes on the reservation need to be demolished and replaced due to infestation of potentially fatal black mold However, there are no insurance or government programs to assist families in replacing their homes. Weather is extreme on the reservation. Severe winds are always a factor. Summer temperatures reach well over 110 degrees and winters bring bitter cold and can reach 50 degrees below zero or worse. Many of us know the situation in Pine Ridge, but it doesn't have to be a situation that we ignore. I encourage everyone to check out friendsofpineridgereservation.org where you can contribute to current donation drives and so on. So please, everyone go check it out. And if nothing else, share the information on your social sites. I'll also be sure to post the link for Friends of Pine Ridge on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. So Wayne, uh, did you experience some of that when you were there, that extreme weather and you know some of those really devastating statistics there? Uh, yes, I did. And I, I think while the, the numbers are maybe a little bit different in many of the places that I've been, I think you could probably find the same problems exist with all of the Indian tribes, you know, not just uh, Lakota or the Sichangu, but, mm-hmm. you know, because there's reservations all over South Dakota, up into North Dakota, and uh, many of them deal with the same circumstances, same situations. And I I think, you know, being an educator, the really cool thing uh, was that in sports, we played each other. We we would go to their place or they would come to Pine Ridge. A lot of the white schools didn't like coming to Pine Ridge or even when I was at Todd County, sometimes they didn't like, they didn't like coming there, but you know, it was okay for our school and our fans to travel, you know, to their their communities. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's, this is what I had said earlier, that being an educational leader in some of these communities, you know, it wasn't my responsibility to uh, make judgment, you know, about you know, all, that, all that happened, all that, you know, took place. But uh, yeah, the weather was always a factor in the winter. They're harsh, more harsh on people who uh, have no ability to, to heat their homes more often than not, as hard as, say, the Oglalas tried to provide wood for stoves and things. It, it was just hard to keep, stay warm in that kind of condition. Mm-hmm. I, and as far as the, the schools, when I, I got to Pine Ridge that year, it was one of the older schools. The, the auditorium really was not functional. The roof was falling in. Uh, we did not use it. It was, was still attached to the school. 
but we had to keep people out of that area. I remember one of the cultural classes that we taught used the foyer of the auditorium as a classroom because you couldn't go in the auditorium. Hmm. And the second time I went to Pine Ridge, they had a nice new high school. But, you know, it's, it's things that, like any of us, people live with. You know, they, I won't say they necessarily learn to live with it. It's, it's a place where as much as we would not want to have to rely on the federal government, but in many instances, uh, that's the case. That's always what the federal government wants and wanted was for Indians to be dependent upon them and, and not use their sovereignty to achieve a, a better life for their people. And uh, the book that I'm currently reading, that's what that is about, how the Bureau of Indian Affairs has dealt with Indian people all these years and violation of treaties, you know, taking their land, killing their ability to create any kind of uh, development programs to generate funding to assist their people. Uh, the book, by the way, is called uh, Our Brother's Keeper, Indian in White America. You know, it's a good book. I, you might want to pick it up. You know, I think those circumstances and me having the opportunity to work in them, I think, has helped me to be, you know, who I am. I think there's always a need to define who each of us are as an Indian person. And I have to tell you that when I look at combining all of the experiences that I've had growing up in the home that I grew up in, having the mom and dad that I had, working in all the places that I worked, being in all the communities that I've been in, you know, it has strengthened, uh, I guess, what I call Indianness. So it's, it's, it's helped me to focus a lot more of what I read into real life. Uh, the time that I was at Pine Ridge was uh, a little bit after, you know, the wounded knee thing and everything had happened and things were kind of settling back in, you know, to some normalcy. Mm -hmm. They had a different tribal president now. And, and so my good friend, uh, that we worked at the school with, he, we were always riding around <laughs> the res. Right. And he said, and I asked him about, I said, uh, what's, what's Dick Wilson do now? And, uh, no way. <laughs> so, so we, he, he says, he ever, he says, you ever been out to his place? I said, no. He said, it's, he said, I'll take you out there. So we, we went out there and, and he actually owned the auto salvage car place you know i think he maybe did some mechanic work and you know that's that's how times change you know dick wilson goes from this you know president of the tribe and you know being a part of all that occurred and now he's just back to being a regular lakota you right. know, running, an, <laughs> running an auto salvage so just a, wow isn't that interesting and so it's, some of those stories that I told you were from not wounded knee, of course, but <laughs> some of those other ones um, you may have been familiar with, right? Yeah, I, you know, yeah, as, as you were reading, I, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with, you know, I, of course, 
I have I have read uh, "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee" and, oh, right. and uh, you know se- several other books you know about oh just American Indians in general, but you know even you know the, the I have read about the five civilized tribes, mm-hmm. but you know the I think that's the thing you know especially my experience you know being all the places that I've been you know, my association with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, uh, you know, so much of my life has been a part of the government and BIA politics, you know, in, in Indian education. And uh, that, that, in it, that alone is a whole different story, <laughs> you know, that I could tell about my experiences dealing with, uh, you know, the federal government. But not only, you know, not only federal government, but state government as well. Like, for example, when I was at Todd County, Todd County is actually a public school on an Indian reservation. And mm-hmm. so so we dealt with uh, state politics as well as federal. So, you know, it, it, Indian education, you know, there's a lot of uh, one of the schools on the Pine Ridge, one of the schools on the Rosebud, uh, like, for example, Red Cloud Indian School is a Jesuit school on Pine mm-hmm. Ridge. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, St. Francis is also a Jesuit school on the, on the Rosebud. And uh, as you'll recall, history will tell you that the religious sects were used to assimilate Indian people. The federal government paid religious people like the Catholics to go in and uh, help assimilate uh, American Indians. And as you can see, what happened in Canada is part of that problem. You know, finding mm-hmm. all, those kid, all those kids buried at those school locations. And uh, those were all Catholic That's schools. Sad. Yep. And the Catholic schools were actually truly historically the ones that were let's say a lot harder on the children and you know we're not here to sugarcoat the truth it's the truth that has been coming out for many many years from accounts from people who were in the boarding schools and um and now you know proof of a lot of that especially with the the mass graves of buried native children so and again it's nothing against the catholics or the christians or any particular faith but there were bad people at one time who you know this was abuse and if we don't talk about it um you know they always say history is doomed to repeat itself right if we don't um at least acknowledge it so of course but that also having said that the disclaimer here is you worked at riverside you worked at pine ridge and rosebud and flandreau and you know as well as my family did that there's a huge difference between those boarding schools of that time and the boarding schools of today, which are wonderful opportunities now where kids go on their own. They're not forced to go there. Um, you know, either their parents want them to go or the kids want to go because maybe they just want to learn more about their culture, about their language, be around other native kids, or maybe sometimes in some cases, it's a better scenario than what they had at home. You know, they get three square meals a day and a nice roof yeah. over their head and I don't want people to get the wrong impression of today versus yesterday. No, I, I think there is a, a, obviously there's a big distinction between the schools, boarding schools of today and 
at the same time, uh, you know, when we speak historically about uh, those situations, boarding schools were not something that uh, tribes necessarily wanted. Uh, because you're right, they they did take the children, and how the current day boarding school has transitioned into what we think they are. Uh, there's still a little bit of tough thinking about, you know, if they don't go to boarding school, what kinds of schools on the reservation exist where they could stay home? Uh, well, and nine times out of 10, there isn't any. So they go off reservation to public schools. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, it, it's not always an easy, easy circumstance. But, sure. but you're right, they, they do have the option of going to a boarding school, and many of our kids uh, choose to do that. But for the longest time, uh, the, to implement federal policy to uh, fund boarding schools doesn't really, you know, fit well with the kind of education that I think, you know, our tribes would like for our kids to have. But because some of the current federal laws that exist, uh, like Chapter 1, uh, sometimes Title 1, depending on how the law is written, the a lot of these laws were intended for schools on reservations. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, back when they were created, a lot of the kids were leaving the reservation to go to school. So the funding somehow had to get to the public schools to help in their education. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, what, that's why in a lot of public schools, you see, you know, chapter one programs or sometimes, well, like our tribe. And I'm sure that I know the Choctaw tribe too. They get, they get funding to help with the public schools that their kids go to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the Creek Nation, Muscogee Nation does too because that was a department that I oversaw when I worked with the tribe. And uh, the federal government always had their hands in everything that affected Indian people. And certainly education is, is one of them. When I first moved from River uh, Flandreau to Oklahoma, uh, and you may, well, uh, you may recall not long after I got to uh, Riverside, uh, they closed Shilako Indian School. They closed Fort Sill. So the, the federal government had little regard for any kind of treaty that would have said, we'll take your land, but we will provide education. Mm-hmm. And, but here you go, here, the federal government doing you know, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, fortunately for Sequoia, among the Cherokee Nation, the Cherokees uh, contracted Sequoia. So the Cherokees run Sequoia. But uh, as we know, Fort Sill closed, Shilako closed, and uh, they came very close to closing Concho. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow uh, Riverside survived before they stopped uh, that political onslaught to close boarding schools. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, the, the government doesn't choose to respect the sovereignty of the tribes and consult and work with 
you know, to provide what's what the, and address the needs are of, of Indian people. So part of my experience all those years in education, working uh, at these different schools, both on and off reservation, was uh, how well I understood the motives of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because, you know, you, you, you hear the term, we're still here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, that term comes from the federal government's Indian problem. Uh, the only way to solve that problem was to exterminate them all. And uh, while maybe that doesn't persist as much, uh, they still provide a little help to maintain the survival of Indian people. You know, the tribes mm-hmm. tribes are having to do that themselves. So, and some struggle with that. And uh, it's still hard for a lot of tribes and a lot of people. So, and education education was was one of those, you know. And so when we we talk about what you know my life has been, you know that that's what it was for my mom and dad. And uh, so they the, the federal government uh, and my mother was right, you know the children back in those days were wards, and that's the way they viewed it, wards of the government. That the, mm-hmm. the the government could do whatever they they wanted to do with little or no regard or respect to the families, and you know a lot of policies were based on whether tribes had schools and their kids were in the schools. A lot of harsh reality with all of that. Absolutely, and your own mom and dad met while they were at Shiloko Indian School, correct? Uh, yeah. The, it, it uh, when I think back, uh, and when I, my wife's opportunity to speak to my mom about her mother passing away when she was eight, uh, I think it was, she said in 1930, the girls were taken to Eufaula boarding school in Eufaula, Oklahoma, and her brothers were sent to Uchi boarding school at Sepulpa, and so the, the point being is that they were removed from their homes. Little or no respect, again, as I indicated, for the families or for the parents. Uh, they just took them. And uh, if I could, I'd like to share a statement that from an interview with my mom that uh, Bernita, Bernita interviewed my Please mother do. At, one, at one point then. Knowing what I know now, this statement is so powerful. This was her life. And sometimes all all we can do now is read about it in books. And this is what it says. And I speak verbatim from my mother. Mama passed away in 1930. When she passed away, they took us out of our home to a boarding school. I never realized it then. But after I grew up, they had always said that as children, we were a ward of the government. We were Indians. And so that, we had no choice. Dad had no choice. They came in and took us away. Uh, I just, you know, my knowledge, this is the way that it was for, you know, all Indian kids, all Indian families. This is the way the government treated 
Native people. What's that like to hear that in your mom's own words? You don't want me crying again. <laughs> oh, I better be sending you, know, you some tissues if that. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. get it. It's no, I, you know, I, I think uh, for me, you know, that I, I've always been blessed. You know, I'm, I was, I feel very fortunate that through all the trials and tribulations and struggles, you know, my, my mom and dad were able to have a simple life stay together and keep our kids together, keep our my brothers and sisters together. And then when I read this, that's not exactly the way it was for her, but she she accepted that and she let it lead her life to be what she wanted it to be. And in spite of all of this, uh, growing up this way, no no mom after eight, same way with my dad. Uh, my grandmother died when he was, she was very, he was very young. You know, how, how did my grandpas go on? Yeah, did they struggle? Right. You can be assured they struggled, you know. <laughs> and, right, uh, right. So eventually, you know, when they, they ended up in, at Shilako and actually due to some of the programs that Shilako had, uh, that's what kind of led my my mom to uh, Wichita because that's my dad was already there. He had left Shilako because he had had some training in aircraft. So he went to Wichita looking for work in the aircraft business. And then when my mom and uh, some others, I think, including two of her sisters, they went to Wichita. And that's when my dad and mom hooked back up. Uh, after meeting the first time and then uh, eventually uh, they built a relationship and, and got married. I but, love that they met in school. That's so yeah, I think, I think there's obviously a lot of a lot of young people that do and uh, my mom's a, a, a special person just as most moms are and you know they they took advantage of some of the training and education that they they had they also you know my mother was a good athlete she played tennis and and basketball she even had the opportunity to maybe go to uh, a college in Ark city uh, just across the border from shilako into kansas but she felt like i did <laughs> she she didn't she didn't think she could do college work, so oh, she yeah. so she chose not to. But uh, I I think uh, while uh, she grew up in some difficult circumstances, as did my dad, you know they they met and they they made the best of it together. And uh, while we still see a lot of our families, you know, struggling and. And uh, I know when I was at Todd County, uh, many of my my kids were single parent had single parent mothers. They, the mother was raising the kids, and of course, too, you know, a lot of uh, abuse. You know, not just abuse, physical abuse, but sexual abuse as well. I don't need to tell you about suicide. I I could write a book on all of the suicide that I've dealt with in my my career as an educator, 
you know, suicide can be devastating. I think a lot of it, you know, we is you know emotions and mental uh, issues with kids that don't have uh, the kind of help that they need. They don't have the kind of support, you know, that they need. But I can tell you, in most places that I've ever been, uh, that's one of the issues that I dealt with. Uh, unfortunately, on the bad side, I'll just share one, you know, little story with you. We, I was at Flamingo Indian School, and I got a call uh, from the mortuary. We had had an incident previously. Uh, a young man took his life. He took a towel and tore it into strips. And then he, uh, the pipes were exposed in the bathroom and he threw the towel, tied the towel around the pipes above him. And then he, he wrapped them around his neck. Oh, and then he, he leaned on a chair that allowed him to fall off the chair. And then, you know, he, of course, he hung himself. Unfortunately, it was on, it was on a night where you know, a lot of times we would show movies to the kids in the auditorium. And then after the auditorium, a movie was over, we would have a, a late meal. And so, you know, to kind of get them all back in the dorm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was on that night that he did that. The, the real irony of it is that earlier in the day, he was a good athlete and we had a track meet on the public school track. And I was down there and, and uh, Daniel won like three, four medals because he was a good runner. So when the mortuary called me and said, Wayne, uh, can you come down? We were ready to ship Daniel home and we need to have somebody to pick up his belongings and kind of look to make sure that everything is as it needs to be. And uh, so I went down there and they they handed me a plastic bag that had uh, whatever he Daniel had on him, and one of the things that Daniel had on him was four of those medals that he won in that track. No, you know? oh my so, God, Wayne! Wow. So uh, uh, heartbreaking. It, and you know that was one thing, but you, you had to go back to school on Monday, and uh, all of a sudden. Your, your whole school culture is wrecked. You know, the staff, the kids, the kids would not walk in the shower stalls, in the hallways. They, they see him at night. They hear him walking in the halls. Uh, the staff is blaming themselves. You know, those are hard occasions to, to deal with. And uh, I've certainly mm-hmm. dealt with dealt with more than my share in my career. We, we took a, a cultural approach to it and we invited a medicine man to come in and we, we told the students that, that that's what we were gonna do, that he would come in, he, he would burn sage throughout the building, throughout the dorms. Uh, anybody that wanted to smudge, he would make himself available at certain times for the kids to smudge. And it, it just took a while, you know, uh, to kind of get things situated where, you know, there wasn't so much uh, alarm. And of course, uh, the staff is a whole, whole different thing. But 
you know, I, I finally had to call them all in the library and say, look, we can't bring Daniel back. Suicide for many kids is the answer. That's the answer to their problems. That's not what they're told, but to them, they think that's the answer. And I said, and, and Danny, Daniel solved his problems. And I said, now, while we feel bad about that, maybe we feel a little bit of responsibility. I said, you know, we, we've got 450 other kids here that need our attention. And so we, right. we, need, we need to stay focused. And, you know, and that's the only time that I ever addressed the staff about it. And, uh, you know, we just kind of moved on. But I've dealt more than my share of, of the death of students. I bet you have. I mean, it's it's strange because it, it's nowhere near what, what you've probably seen simply because you, you were an educator in the native boarding schools for so many years. But for myself, I have a great amount of, you know, native friends on my social media. And there are a few of them that seems like every other week they're talking about a cousin or a friend or an uncle or whoever it is that another suicide. And sometimes, you know, it just gets so heavy on you. You just think about it and you're like, there's nothing. What can we do? You know, what do we do? But definitely in the Native American community, the suicide rate is so high. And I don't know that a lot of people know that, that it really is a sad scenario. And obviously there's the thought of um, what's the word when you basically you, your trauma has been passed down through generations. And I believe that everyone can work through any kind of trauma, you know, it, not that it's easy. I believe there is hope. I don't want us to always focus on the fact that, you know, some, some people feel helpless and I hope that they will feel hope, but at the same time, knowing where that comes from, it could come from years and years of ancestral ancestors being abused or, even going back to the Trail of Tears. So it's a it's an interesting theory and thought. And I tend to believe that it is true that historical trauma can be passed down. Uh, there's no no question about that. I mean, I I think each of us in our own way uh, live with it. We we try to adapt and adjust to it, but sometimes we're successful and, and sometimes we're not, which is to say, I think there will always be occasions when historical trauma of we as pe native people you know it doesn't necessarily have to say it happened to us but it happened to our people you know and so uh, i don't know that that will necessarily be a, a circumstance that will be easily resolved in a world that refuses to accept the truth and much less even want to hear the truth uh, and that's why I say it. that's why I read so much. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm not involved in Indian education or Indian issues much anymore, but I still thrive on having as much knowledge as I can about what history has been and why it's still relevant today in dealing mm -hmm. with dealing with what we deal with. Absolutely. Wow, it's pretty heavy stuff. And and honestly, I, I wanted to share a little bit about Shiloko because I think a lot of people have heard of it but don't know much about it. It was a boarding school that focused on agriculture and was open from 1884 to 1980, just outside of Newkirk, Oklahoma, which was close to the Kansas border. Shiloko means big deer or horse in the Muscogee language. In reading accounts from students, some stories were positive and some negative. 
Some students had bad situations at home and the school provided a roof over their heads and meals to eat. On the other hand, others told of poor living conditions and malnutrition, typical of a lot of the native boarding schools at that time. I cover quite a bit of information on the boarding schools in various episodes. And as I mentioned before, you know, understanding that the atrocities that occurred, um, you know, need to be addressed and remembered. But today it's definitely a, a 180 from the old days and something that happens now as students are taught their culture and traditions and they're given a positive environment with caring instructors. So Wayne, tell us more about your family and your family history. Your, your parents were born in the 1920s, correct? Yes. I think back then, and I think as you know, Indians didn't become citizens until 1924. You know, Congress didn't create the law to make Indians citizens until 1924. And that always astounds me a little bit because my mom and dad were born in 1921 and 1922. So when they were born, they weren't considered citizens of this country, even though at that time, there wasn't a, a true process of identifying citizens of a tribe that, you know, that part didn't come till later. But, you know, and when we talk about historical trauma, you know, to me, <laughs> that that's part of it. You know, when you're going through it, you know, and my, my parents lived through a brief time where where they weren't citizens. And what does that mean? What, you, they can't vote or they can't do this or they can't do that. But I think as, as far as, you know, my, my family, we, I guess what I would want people to know is that in spite of a lot of the adversity that our families experience, you know, that there's a responsibility of, of everybody in each family to do their part, you know, and I think this is where a lot of our families break down, you know, uh, we, we have this expectation that it's only the mom and the dad that, that provide, you know, all those years, you know, my mom and dad worked every day. They, they worked at aircraft business for worthless wages. You know, that, that's why my mom and dad wanted, thought so much about education. And I really feel like the decision that they made to push my brother and I towards going to Haskell was they, they wanted us to have a better life. At the same time, they wanted us to have a better life than they did. But, you know, that's real harsh for me to say that. Because I always thought growing up with my mom and dad, I had a good life. My mom and dad loved me. They provided. We had a roof over our head. We had transportation. We had food on the table. They couldn't always pay their bills. But you know what? We had some of the essential needs that, that people have to have. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, not everybody does have. You know, so I, I think about that a lot, you know, and the times of, of growing up, you know, being a kid during those times when uh, I'll just share a, a personal incident in my life that I remember one day my mom and dad 
had borrowed a car and because they didn't have one. And we uh, was all four of us, my brother, my two sisters. We were I was I think I was around third grade and uh, we, we got in the car and it was really all real quiet. And what we didn't know at that time until later was that our mom and dad were taking us to a children's home. And we stayed in that children's home for a year through the third grade. And uh, we only saw our mom and dad when they could get transportation to come and see us at that children's home. And we did that for a year, you know, so did I think that was tough? Yeah, I think I thought it was tough. But I, at the same time, it would be selfish of me to not think how tough it was for my mom and dad to do that. To, in their efforts to make a life for themselves after moving to Wichita, this is what they were faced with, trying to have a life and still still have that life. You know, I mean, they came to Wichita by themselves. Now here they had four kids <laughs> to deal with. And so I, I, I realize now how tough that might have been for my mom and dad to do that, to leave us in that children's home for a year. But, you know, I, I, I guess it was what was best. You know, I think things got a little better after that. They both ended up having jobs and getting jobs and, and then, you know, being able to, you know, rent a house or have a place of our own. So it wasn't so bad after all, I guess. My brother and I, we, we still laugh and, and think about that. But, you know, even now, maybe we find a little humor with it. But back then, maybe it wasn't so humorous. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's it, just one of those things that I think families struggle with. It's one of the things that we struggled with. And... Uh, I think eventually, you know, things got better and, you know, we ended up with uh, transportation in the house. And and I, I think about, too, uh, what a culmination that was for my mom and my dad, leaving their homeland to come to Wichita and a whole different world, you know, the discrimination and racism. And they they survived, you know, they they persisted. And so I, I think in me, I think sometimes that's the least I can do is to show because of them, I am who I am. And, you know, when we would talk about education that my mom and dad wanted for us, my oldest brother has a master's degree from Penn State. I have a doctor's degree from the University of Missouri. My sister has a bachelor's degree from Newman in Wichita. And my other sister has a bachelor's degree from uh, Shawnee. I think that's, the, in some way, some small way, how we've honored our mom and dad for the sacrifices that they had in their life to give us a life. So, God bless them. And you know, now, now the, my dad's been gone for a long time. My mom lived for a long time after that. She was, she was 99 when wow. she passed. 
and uh, my dad was 62. So he, wow. he died yeah. way yeah. before his time. So, he yeah. sure did. He sure did. Yeah. But you know what, though, Rachel? You know, when I talk about Haskell, I mean, I played football and I played tennis and my brother played basketball. When we had games, you know, Wichita is about, oh, two and a half hours on the interstate from Wichita. You know what? Every chance my mom and dad got after work, they would come up to Lawrence to watch us play. Are you serious? Wow. <laughs> and that is so, so special. So Haskell, you know, not only for us, as, you know, me and my brother and my sister, but uh, it was something for my mom and my dad, you know. To, yeah, so to, proud, right? Yeah, to show their, their support and, and what we were doing. And that's why I always say Haskell was, you know, one of the great experiences in my life. And that's, that's part of it because of what it meant for my mom and dad, too. So really, really a, a very special time and a special experience in, in the life of the Johnson family. <laughs> right, right. You know, it, I know that this, some of these subjects have been really hard to talk about. And by the way, you've soldiered through very well, but it's so inspiring. I mean, your, your words are positive. You know, the fact that your family didn't have much and they struggled but they loved you guys and they wanted the best for you. And, and hear you again, then the story of the note in the counselor's folder, and you didn't let that stop you. You needed a little prodding, which we all do. I mean, that's a word for all of us too. Don't forget to encourage people to, you know, retire and, and do what they're meant to do. And everybody deserves a chance. So yeah. um, the, these are so inspiring, even to just to me. So I hope our listeners will enjoy it too. Well, and, you know, to, to kind of close out the family part of it, I, you know, I had four sons and a daughter. My daughter has two children, Wrigley and Kennedy. Matter of fact, Kennedy is uh, going to be enrolled at the University of Kansas. And this, well, matter of fact, they're bringing her down here next next week. So oh, yeah. That's, that's exciting, you know. So she's leaving South Dakota to come to University of Kansas in Lawrence. <laughs> and, you know, my I have four sons. My daughter's name is Heather, Heather, Elaine, Elizabeth. And those are the two names of her grandmothers. Oh, and, beautiful. Yeah. And so uh, then my oldest boy is Aaron, then Jeremy, Cody, and Nathan. And then on, on Bernita's side, she has a daughter, uh, Beth. And two sons, Michael and David, you know, and so Beth has two children, uh, Brooke and Braden, you know, so we, we've just been blessed with our children and grandchildren. And we, the tough part about it is they all live up north, South Dakota and Minnesota. Oh, I'm sending hellos to them. Hello to all the children of Bernita and uh, Wayne. I hope uh, many blessings are on your families. Yeah, thank you for that. I I did. I talked to my son today. One of them, he lives here in Kansas City, he and his girlfriend. And uh, so they, I told him I was going to do this podcast with you. He said, oh, that's really cool, Dad. He said, uh, 
I said, I'll let you know, you know, when it hits the, the, the media. He said, okay, do that. So oh, I, yes. I, wanted, I wanted to make sure I, I got their names in there. And things. So, you know, we're, we're really proud of our kids. And, of course. And, uh, like I said, we just don't see enough of them. But, you know, we're, we're happy that they're happy and they, they're doing their best to, to have the kind of life that, uh, that they want. My daughter is a teacher at Flandre Indian School. I remember telling her one time, I said, Heather, whatever you do, don't be a teacher. <laughs> she obviously didn't take dad's advice. <laughs> yeah, see how much she listens to me. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you know, I mean, that really must say a lot. She probably really admired what you did in life and wanted to be just like you. So what a compliment, <laughs> eh? Yeah, it is really. <laughs> Actually, it is. So, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, we, like I say, we, uh, uh, you know, Bernita's a, a longtime educator. You know, she also worked at Flandre Indian School. And uh, she's probably the, well, I have to say, she is the reason that I have a doctor's degree. And, wow, uh, tell us about that. We first got together. Well, actually, we had been together for a long time before Kansas City and when I moved here, she she was teaching at uh, doing some adjunct work for the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and mm -hmm. also uh, in, in uh, Fargo. And at the time, all I had was a master's degree. So she talked me into enrolling at uh, UMKC in their uh, ed specialist degree program. So I did. And... Uh, and I ended up with an ed specialist degree, which is the next degree above a master's degree. And then I stumbled across a program that was a doctoral program. And she she said, you need to you need to call about that. So I called and somehow I got in. and She kept me on pace with the, the book work. And, and then, of course, the writing of the comps and and then, of course, the dissertation. So. You know, when you have that kind of support, that you know that that kind of help, you know, it's it's hard to go wrong. So I can remember we had one bedroom just set up for my area to write in. You know, all my literature was everywhere, my laptop. And I'd be sitting there watching TV, and she'd say, "Don't you think you should be in there writing?" <laughs> so get on in there, get yep, to writing. There I go. <laughs> And you know, the funny part about that, Rachel, is that, uh, yeah, I could write at different times, but sometimes I would be up there just literally in the middle of the night. And, and sometimes that's when I would do my best writing. And then there's other times you could sit down. I couldn't write my name. And, hmm. you know, that's just the, the struggles of, you know, what you go through and you've got a big document to write and, yeah, and I think it ended up uh, like 220 pages. So wow, that's that's quite an achievement. <laughs> I know I couldn't do that without my eyes going crossed. At least <laughs> <laughs> mine went crossed. I just have I'm still waiting for them to uncross. No, <laughs> <laughs> is that what happens? No, I just exactly. kidding. Yeah. eyes are not crossed. Just yeah, for our listeners, I, but <laughs> yeah, I first saw you on the screen. I saw two of you. <laughs> But, uh, uh, but, that, but that's, you know, kind of my family, you know, we, 
you know, like I say, we, uh, you know, when Bernie and I visit a lot, we we talk about family. We we talk about you know what it was like for her parents because she's Danish, and we share a lot of Indian issues, and mm-hmm. so it's it's always good to you know to talk on the same level with you know, with people because they, they know and understand, you know, what it's, what it's like. And so, mm-hmm. uh, Renita taught at Flandre Indian School as well. So. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned kind of a funny story though, about, about Heather and a doctoral student who had asked her about some native authors, <laughs> right? Yeah. We were up visiting one time and she said, dad, I got to tell you something. She said, you're just not going to believe this. She <laughs> said, uh, there's a, a guy at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. He was looking for somebody to tell him about where he could find certain resources, certain resources because he was working on his dissertation. Somehow he got my name and he called me. And he just called out of the clear blue because... Uh, you know, Heather's uh, enrolled as a Santee Sioux, and and uh, so she's tribal. And he that's when he when he contacted, he he asked her about, you know, could she help him find some resources on on Indian education? And he said, right now, the only thing I have is a a dissertation on educational leadership by a Dr. Wayne Johnson. <laughs> Say what? She said, "I about lost it." She said, "That that's my dad." I love that. That is so great. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, you know, your dad's kind of a big deal. So now you know. (laughs) And I know you won't brag on yourself, so I'll do it for you. You've been published in articles, especially in Indian education. You've walked the halls of Congress and spoken to a lot of other Congress people about education. You were also tribal assembly president and an educational counselor appointed by the governor. When you were secretary of education, you even worked on the executive board for the Johnson O'Malley program. The Johnson O'Malley program, tell us a little bit more about that. It was authorized early, early on, uh, and it really surfaced because of how the the federal government was dealing with uh, native kids. And as you know, when they create a bill, for Congress to pass, uh, everybody, every politician is jumping on board to add their bill onto a particular bill, you know, that they know is going to pass. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the, the Johnson O'Malley uh, bill is reauthorized, you know, by Congress uh, yearly, and, and and that's you know really how the Johnson O'Malley act started and again as i told you a, a lot of the indian kids left the reservation to go to public schools and so they were probably instead of the boarding schools and reservation schools there were probably as many kids in public schools across the country and so the johnson o'malley bill helped you know fund uh, the education and, and provide needed uh, tutoring and services to Indian kids in schools. But, you know, uh, not only on reservation schools, but off reservation schools, you know, and so it, it's a it, it's a good bill, you know, and 
the way the money is determined for that bill is by the counting of American Indian kids. Well, for many years, uh, yeah, we counted the Indian kids, but the the money that we got for each kid stayed the same, and that mm-hmm. that needed to be fixed. And so one of the, the things that I'm really pleased with, because I served on the, the National Johnson O'Malley Board, uh, was to lobby Congress. Uh, and of course, we, we had one of the best lobbyists in the country. Boy, we, we just walked the halls of Congress and talked to any congressman uh, that, that would listen to us. Uh, at the same time, we, we scheduled uh, special congressmen that had concerns with Native Americans. So while we didn't talk to all everybody, we talked to the ones that primarily showed a strength in uh, Indian education. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, we, we got the amount increased uh, per student, and we came up with a, a better process of counting them, counting the kids, you know, because it's not every public school had a Johnson O'Malley program, but they had Indian kids. So how do you count them? You know, so we helped to generate a, a new law and a new bill, you know, to accommodate this program. So I, in leaving, when I retired, that was with feather in my cap. Very proud of you, by the way. Thank you. I'm so glad you you find pride in that too, because something that we all value and probably isn't our educators probably are not thanked enough. So thank you for all of that. So it's the work of people like yourself that truly are, you know, actionable in a meaningful way to our native youth. You've done so much there. And yet when you and I were last talking, you literally said to me, None of that compares to when I was a teacher. I love that. Yeah. You know, I, when I first went to Haskell, of course, I went there because the coach asked me and, I, I was, and my attitude was simply about sports, you know, participating in sports and going early to practice football and stuff. And, you know, when school started, we actually had to go to class. <laughs> I got to thinking, you know, I better figure out why I'm here, you know, and eventually uh, that's what I decided that I, I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. And and I think once I made that decision, I think that's kind of what carried me through because I, I knew the courses that I would have to take. And of course, you know, Haskell at that time was just a two year school. So I would have to graduate with my AA degree and go to a four-year school to finish and do my student teaching. And so, you know, that's that's what I did. Matter of fact, when it came for me to do my student teaching, I wanted to be in a school where there was a population of Indian kids. I had to drive a long way to do it, but uh, but I did. So that, that's kind of what, what got me started, you know, going to an Indian school working as a student teacher with Indian kids. And then, like I indicated earlier, before I could graduate from Baker, I was offered a job at Flandreau Indian School. So I took it. And I certainly, while it was a crossroads for me, you know, I, I never really looked back. You know, I just, I, I went to Flandreau and whatever Flandreau Indian School gave me and led me to, that's, that's what I did. Andrew led me to Riverside, and Riverside led me to Pine Ridge, 
Pine Ridge led <laughs> me back to River, uh, Flandreau, and Flandreau led me to Rosebud with some stops, you know, in between. And then, of course, you know, I retired working for my tribe. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that it all started with my desire to be a teacher. And, you know, that's your legacy. And, and it's a noble, you know, very noble legacy. So I'd like to leave our listeners with an interesting story, in addition to the other interesting stories we've been hearing, about your connection with Billy Mills or William Mervyn Mills. He's an Oglala Lakota whose name is Tamakoche Tehila. He shows up at the Tokyo Olympics in 1964 and was basically a no-name, completely unknown, and he totally crushed the 10,000-meter run, winning a gold medal. He even beat the world record holder. Today, he's still known as one of the biggest upsets in Olympic history because of his being so unknown prior to the event. Tell us about your story of Billy Mills. I, I could tell you a lot of stories about Billy. I think uh, the, the key thing, I, I think the first time I ever met Billy was when I was at Haskell. And he was coming down from South Dakota. And he was with the, the athletic director from Flandre Indian School. I did, I did not know him at the time. But he and Billy were good friends. And, and one day they showed up at, at Haskell. And, well, I found out later that Billy was going to speak at the Federal Pen in Leavenworth. And he was going to speak to a, a Native American culture group. And lo and behold, I was invited to go with Billy and my friend to the prison to hear Billy speak. So we, we all met at the prison at a certain time because you had to go in at a certain time. And you had to empty everything out of your pockets. and uh, they open a door, you go in, they close it behind you, then they open the other door, and they kind of tell you, don't look at the prisoners, you know, mm-hmm. just follow the guards, they're going to take you to the room. And so we, that's what we did. It was really just awesome, because to see these Native prisoners come in and, and be a part of this culture group that they have, it, I I still think about that a lot. Billy got up to speak, and before he speaks, he always shows the finish of that 10,000-meter run in the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, he came to Flandre Indian School, and I introduced him, and that's, that's what we showed it. And I can tell you, every time I watch that, I just get chills. It's just so awesome. But the other thing about Billy is that he is the only American to ever win the 10,000 meter run. Amazing. The the only American. And uh, a lot of people will never understand how much of an upset that it was for Billy to win that race because he did, in fact, beat the world record holder who was supposed to be a shoe-in to win the race. Billy was a nobody. Uh, He wasn't even supposed to be in the race, but he was never given a chance. And Mm -hmm. so for him to win and in the fashion that he did was just, he showed that video to the prisoners. (laughs) And it's so cute. They they just stood up and clapped. That's so Uh, awesome. 
Yeah. That was, I tell you, talk about put a lump in your throat. Well, I mean, when you talk about this, it, it right, like you said, it's a goosebumps moment because I think about so many of these natives that probably were in that prison for whatever crime or whatever had happened at that point in their lives. And we all know that there is a history of, of a lot of challenges in our community. And so for them to look at a hero like this that just crushed it and was Native American and represented, you know, their same ethnicity. I, I'm sure it just must have been really, really cool for them to have that to look up to. Oh, it, it was it was just awesome. And, and of course, you know, I've had so many occasions to listen to Billy talk and and just be around him, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, afterwards the the president of the organization, he handed out certificates to all of us, certificates of appreciation to all of us that were there. And I, I just cherish that certificate. I've been given a lot of recognition things and certificates in my career. <laughs> and I have to tell you, that's one of the ones that I value the most was is that uh, certificate that, that shows that I was part of this uh, meeting. and. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, that it just just made made my day when I talk when I think about Haskell. That's this is one of the the true experiences that I that I remember that I love sharing. And you even mentioned like the Olympics are going on right now as we are recording this. So uh, you mentioned that he would be going to Tokyo or maybe he's already there and he'd go with his wife. And that that must be something really incredible to be back where he won in 1964, right? Uh, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, Native Americans have a legacy in Japan, and uh, certainly Billy is part of that, you know, uh, and I, I think that was one of the reasons why he and Pat went back to Tokyo this year was they had uh, created, a, uh, I think, a, a statue, you know, that they were going to honor Billy with, so they, he, they had the opportunity to go back. I don't know if you saw it, but on one of the nights of the, the night of the 10,000 meter run, during the run, they uh, honored Billy during the run. Uh, oh, they, cool. I they, missed that. Are you serious? Yeah, they, they showed a replay of that, that run. So be prepared to get a lump in your throat. I know. I've already had a bunch of them tonight. Goodness. <laughs> Time <laughs> for know, more, the, I guess. <laughs> the, the guys that are doing the, the commentary on the race, you know, it's getting down to the end and Billy is not close. And wow. all, all of a sudden they're calling it like one of these other runners is going to get the, the victory. And one of the background commentary guys says, all of a sudden, uh, he says, and here comes Mills. And then this one guy just blurts out, look at Mills, look at Mills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you have to see it. Wow. It'll, it'll, wow. It'll just, it's so spectacular. So, so spectacular. I uh, love it all, so much. It, it, it's awesome. So I, you know, I'm, I'm Facebook friends with, with Billy. And we see uh, whenever we can, a lot of times Pat and Billy will come back to Lawrence for something and, you know, and we'll, run into them and so i over the years since haskell i've i've seen 
Billy on so many. He comes to Pine. He came to Pine Ridge a lot of times, and you know, and I've seen him at different uh, events. You know, other big meetings like uh, National Congress of American Indians or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. So Wayne, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to impart upon myself and our listeners before we close? I guess the the only words that I could think of that. I think it helped me a lot is that, you know, when you, you think about your life uh, and the people that have been in it, the situations that you've been in, you know, we always know that there's going to be good and bad. And unfortunately, we can't just call out the bad and, and only deal with the good. Um, unfortunately, life does not work that way. So in working with young people and the people that I've been around, I've always tried to say, know who you are and know how you got to be that person. Because if you don't, it's going to be real hard to go to move forward, you know. And, and I, think, I think that's just uh, the, the, what, what helped me uh, as I went through a, a lot. I mean, nothing is easy for anybody. It certainly wasn't easy for me. But when you have so much to be be thankful for, just understand and know how you got that, how you are in the situation that you're in. So you can find value in yourself and who you are can, and will continue to move forward with that, facing any challenges that might be ahead of you. I love that. This conversation has been such an inspiration to me, and I know it will be to our listeners as well. You were listed as not college material, and you went on to get your degree and master's degree and doctorate and to write a 220-page dissertation, not to mention, oh yeah, you served our country in the Navy too. You then went on to improve education and help for Native American youth and have done so much in the community. If you can do that, And if Billy Mills, who was a native that no one knew, can win an Olympic medal, people, we can do anything. Please feel empowered today to do what it is that you're called to do. Yekoki Wayne for being here with me today. Mado Rachel. God bless. Right here at Chickasha Wings, we teach people to fly. We've got 11 airplanes, nine flight instructors, and about five mechanics. We turn out about 80 new certificates or ratings each year. And we train pilots who now fly at the major airlines. We have they fly for the Air Force, the FAA, for private jets. They even have a few missionary pilots. Our customers come from all over the United States. Here at Chickasha, we're able to provide lower costs, a more focused training program, and we're able to provide a higher level of customer service. My favorite thing about this business is helping people. Because I see people go from not knowing anything about it to being an airline pilot. Come out here and learn to fly. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.